Hello. Welcome back to the DOP Dutch Oven Podcast. What's going on? Hope everyone's well, staying healthy. You know how it goes. Sometimes it's hard. So, I'm not sure, but I think there's some news going on in the world right now. I don't know what happened. I, you know, I'm out of the loop. Just kidding. Of course I know what the frick happened. Um, but one thing I want to just talk about. So, I don't write notes. I just kind of wing it, right? Not all, not everything I, I say is is politically correct or... Even sometimes I make mistakes just in my turns of phrase and stuff like that. Because it's kind of hard. When you go one take, like, let's go. Um, it doesn't always come out exactly how I'd want it to. But that's just how it goes. So we're going to give this a shot. So I'm sure everybody's aware of George Lloyd's death and all the protests that have gone on. Now, I've waited a little while to comment. I've been watching lots of CNN coverage which I might get into later, we'll see. Um, But I've also been... I wanted to wait before I talked about it until I actually went to one of the protests. And I was working in Lethbridge, so I decided I'd go to the YQL protest. And, you know, I worked all day, went. Um, It was pretty good. There were some speakers I don't necessarily agree with. uh, or, Or not that I don't agree with them. It's just I found that... There were moments in their speeches that they were kind of reaching a little bit, right? Like just just trying to make connections that may or may not be there. Uh, one speaker talked about a black cat and the <laughs> and the quote unquote racism against black cats versus white cats, and the story was was an absolute narrative. Um, probably, you know, fictional narrative because. Cops were involved in that, so with this black cat. I'm not going to get too much into it, because I thought the rest of her story was pretty interesting. Um, but they also referenced a, a business that they thought was uh, racist, and that everybody at the protest should boycott that business, and there was a huge cheer. I'm not going to get into that, because I don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, it's really hard to prove. So, here's the thing, right? In society, in Western liberal democracies, democracies, it's innocent until proven guilty, right? And I hate to say this, but it's a fact, is that I don't always believe everything everyone says. I don't believe what CNN pumps out. I don't believe what the media pumps out. I don't believe everybody's stories. I like to kind of think about them. And because perspective is everything... I think when it comes to things like racism, you have to be so careful to understand the person's intentions with what they were trying to say. So sometimes somebody may say something that's that comes across racist, but I think one of the key so so when you're in these intellectual circles and these academic circles, one of the key things they talk about, right, is the difference between prejudice, bigotry, and racism right? Prejudice is just kind of an attribute that you, or is just a characteristic that you attribute to somebody uh, without a true understanding of whether it's attributable to them. 
For example, I could, I could have a prejudice that black people like to eat fried chicken, right? Now, if a black person eats fried chicken or doesn't, if I assume that they eat fried chicken, that's a prejudice, right? Like, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not like I'm sitting there, like, it's not like you saying that you eat fried chicken is, 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 creates a horrible power dynamic. You eat fried chicken is just kind of a prejudice that we have in our heads. It's, it's, it could be silly, it could not be, but it's not, there's not really any teeth to it, right? Now, bigotry is a little different because bigotry is the idea that the, the quality you attribute to somebody defines who they are. For example, all black people are thugs or all indigenous people are drunks or even on the flip side, all white people are white supremacists. So the idea with bigotry is that you are, you are taking a generalization and you're attributing it to an entire group of people, an identity group of people, and forming your opinions based on that about all of them. So the, 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 thing, the difference between prejudice and bigotry is that bigotry is, has a very negative connotation to it all the time, right? But bigotry is different than racism in these circles. Now, how these, these academic circles would define racism is it's basically bigotry plus a power dynamic. So if there is never a power dynamic and power in terms of having the ability to control a subset of, of anything, like you could, your parents have power over you when you're under 18, law enforcement have power over you, like the power dynamic is that control, right? And, and it, it can be based on coercion, which is the ability to use power to force people to do what you want. And there's soft power, hard power. This stuff is very, it gets complicated. It's very political science. Um, important to understand, but, but the, the core of it is that they argue that racism cannot exist unless a power dynamic is in place based on racial identities, right? And that, that's the argument with all the isms, right? Is that bigotry can exist without power, right? But the sexism, homophobia, all that stuff, those definitions require power. And so this is a way for certain people to maneuver around making it so that, for example, in North American society, white people can't be racist. That's, that's the argument, right? When you hear somebody say, oh, you can't be racist, well, they're talking about the power dynamic built into the system, the institutional power dynamic. Which, you know, I understand the argument, but I, one question I always ask these people who say that, you know, white people can't be racist and only people of color can, only white people can be racist, sorry, is like, what about China? What about Asia? If you honestly believe that white people hold the power in China, you'd, you're not paying attention. But yet... For example, when this COVID stuff came out, the Chinese McDonald's banned African, or well, sorry, black people, because they're not African-Americans, but black people, from entering McDonald's. 
Now, if you want to say that's not racist because it's white supremacy is the only is the only thing that can is the only white people are the only race that can be racist. You're completely wrong. Your 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 exact definition of racism is supported by China because of the power dynamics. And if you want to talk that that say Americans are racist towards the Chinese. Well, you gotta you gotta slow your roll. They could be racist towards Chinese Americans, but to say that an American is racist towards the Chinese when the power dynamics in the world are what they are, you know, it, it there's more thought that needs to go into that understanding. But okay, so let's accept it. I'm not. I'm going to say racism exists because I do believe racism and racism exists, especially towards indigenous communities. When 40-some percent of the um, in the incarcerated population in Canada is indigenous, and they only represent about two to three percent of the total population, well, that that kind of shows that there is there's got to be a problem here that's worth looking at and worth solving. But to bring it back to the racism stuff, so I would argue that there are other countries in the world that could be racist. And a friend of mine was talking to me and said, well. You know, if that's if that's the thing, he's like, well, couldn't it be considered in Africa? Couldn't if there's white people in Africa and and they have true democracies or even true dictatorships, you know, doesn't that say that there should, there there could be racism towards white people? And I would I would argue maybe. I mean, if you understand apartheid and you understand how uh, colonialism works, you know, it's it's a tough sell. But I mean, in today's world, you could probably make the case that there's racism towards white people in those places. You could you could definitely make the case there's racism towards white people in the Middle East. But that's fine. So, you know, we're going to I'm going to leave that there because uh, I mean, it's just something to think about um, when you're hearing these conversations is to understand what how people are defining things and how prejudice and bigotry and racism are defined differently in these circles. I, I, I don't know. I think bigotry and racism are kind of interchangeable. I mean, the liter- like, like I said, the literature kind of suggests they're not, but I mean, whatever. It is what it is, and people are entitled to their perspectives. But so I'm at this protest, and there were a few things that really dawned on me. And there were some really powerful moments when I was there. Now, kneeling for nine minutes, that one hit me in the, in the heart. Because I noticed everybody was switching knees. Everybody got tired. I was getting tired. I killed myself not to switch knees, honestly. Just because I wanted to like... I don't know. It's probably narcissism, if anything. It's just I didn't want to be that guy. I'm competitive, right? So I'm like... "Eh." But it also was me trying to pay my respect, right? To To the cause. Because I do. Racism is a problem. Bigotry is a problem. It's a huge problem. And some of the stories I heard really, really reinforce that with me. That we need to take some time and we need to reassess how we're doing things. And as soon as we come trying to pretend that Canada doesn't have a racist history, well, we're being silly. And even Jason Kenney tweeted about that. And he, and he tweeted that, that um, you know, Canada can't ignore, even Alberta can't ignore our, ra- our racially charged history. And I definitely agree with that. But at the same time, and it's hard for me to understand. It's it's very hard to put my myself in racialized group shoes. Uh, my best example that I could probably say that would like 
on a micro level. Like I'm not trying to compare. So let, let's try to understand this from my point of view, right? I am not for one second trying to compare my experience with a racialized community's experience in Canada because it's not the same. The power dynamics are intense. It's, it's a screwed up thing that has happened, right? But my, so, so, but in order for me to empathize with that cause, I have to kind of take my own emotional experiences and try and apply them and try and use my, use a sense of insight to try to understand, right? That's the best way to create an ally. So for me, my best example of experiencing, experiencing racially charged things would be playing in, in money tournaments and hockey tournaments on reserves, and experiencing, you know, refs not making calls, taking beatings, having to fight for every inch, getting slashed and whacked and, and just, you know, and I know those are little things. So trust me, I understand. But I understand playing in those tournaments what it's like to be the only white guy in a dressing room. And I don't think that many white people do have that understanding. What it's like to be the only white person in a room. To hear people speaking, you know, Blackfoot and not understanding it. And, and, and seeing them talk amongst each other and laugh and give you those nonverbal cues that they're making comments about you that you don't understand. You know, or having refs, you know, just look the other way while you are getting pummeled and having to just grit your teeth and take it. So on that micro level, the, I can understand some of, of what, it, what you have to go through as a, as a racialized minority. Now... Let me pause right there because the key point with my little anecdote is that I got to leave that. I chose to be there. I chose to be involved in that. In the, I knew what I was getting into and I made the choice to go deal with it. I wasn't forced to be there. Now that's the difference between, and it was on such a, it's in, in weekend intervals, not lifetime intervals. So trust me. I recognize my privilege in that situation. I understand I get to leave. I chose to be there. And the problem with the injustice that's going on in our society today when it comes to racialized groups, and racialized groups are people of color. It's kind of an academic way of saying that because racialized means minority groups, right? But, you know, I understand that they are stuck in this system that they are fighting against. Now, I said this to one of my friends. I said, listen, I, as a Southern Albertan, with a, a, a good grasp of Indigenous communities around me, and, I, you know, caveat, I do have an Indigenous, I have two Indigenous nephews. So the Indigenous cause, and I know that is kind of one of those things that they say, oh, divide and conquer, this and that, but no. But that's just the cause that hits me more in my heart. I'm more about the Indigenous rights. I really am. Because I really, really see how intergenerational trauma and drug abuse and sexual abuse and how those things linger throughout, you know, lifetimes and through different generations and how they're so hard to combat and how we don't have enough money for mental health and how, you know, on-reserve schools are funded at 75% of off-reserve schools. Like, these are institutional injustices. You know, the on-reserve schools have to answer to the federal government, the the Northern and Indigenous Affairs, whatever. They change that name all the time, so I don't know. But 
On Reserve schools answer to them, whereas every other school, education is covered by the provinces. So there's this, there's this lack of accountability, and it's, it's messy when it comes to education on, on Reserve. And the funding gaps. And funding makes a big difference. I mean, you know, I talked about how there's a lot of mismanagement of funds. But there's also, when you have mismanagement combined with a lack of funds, then you have a real problem. You know? Um, And so, you know, when it comes to Indigenous understandings, I don't know everything there is to know about it. I studied hard. To know as much as I could about the Blackfoot culture. I went to, uh, we did a walk through the, to the Sun Wheel up at Nose Hill Park or whatever it is with an Indigenous leader. You know, I've done some of this stuff and it, it was super interesting. Um, but, I, but I'm trying. I try my best. I go to the protests. I shut my mouth. You know what, honestly, I hate chanting. I think chanting is, it makes me feel like a sheep. It really does. But I was there in solidarity. And when I took the knee, I felt it. And the one moment that made me tear up the most, and I did tear up, I did tear up, because you hear these people, you hear their pain, you see their pain, where they feel marginalized in our society, and I don't. I feel I have a big, powerful voice. But the most powerful moment for me was when I saw families who would bring their young kids between like four and six year old kids to these protests masked up. But that's what, that's what the solution is. It's teaching these kids that people are people and you need to be on the right side of history. You know, I'm not saying that I haven't made jokes and I don't make jokes and I, and I probably will continue to make jokes, but everybody does that. Of all racialized groups, we make jokes about each other. It's about seeing the intent. And I think when we define racism and we define power structures and we define privilege, one of the things that I really, really think that they're missing is the intent of what is done and said. I really think there's a big difference between intending to hurt someone based on racial characteristics and accidentally doing it. Now, a lot of people would say that's unconscious, conscious bias, difference, and, and all this, this garbage. But I really think if I'm intending to make you laugh when I make a joke, or if I'm intending to hurt you when I insult you, that should come into play when we're talking about racism and when we're talking about bigotry. And how can we know that if we shut down our conversation? Now, the reason I bring up that point is because I was listening to Ryan Jesperson on, and, and he had a really good round table, bunch of race, racialized people, and they were talking. And there was one guy that made a comment that really stuck out to me in that. And, and, and I'm paraphrasing, so I'm not going to get this perfect. But he basically stated that if a, a racialized person calls you a racist as a white person, you need to shut up and listen. And... And that point to me did not sit well because there are two reasons. If you are going to call me a racist and I'm not allowed to respond to that, that creates a position of power I don't agree with because all of a sudden people are 
able to shut down conversations based on what? Based on what premise? Just because they say you're a racist and you're not allowed to say anything back because you must be? Well, okay. But if I can't say anything back, how am I how do I know that we have a shared definition of racism? How do I know what what should what I think he should be saying is we should be having this conversation. If someone a racialized community member says to you you are racist as a white man, I have every right to say to you how would you define racism? What what was racist especially when I'm not acting like a bad actor? When I'm coming in here with good intentions and you turn around and tell me I'm racist and I'm not allowed to ask you how do you define racism? What do you think that means? I just have to take it. What are you doing? If that is your solution to racism, you are going to, in my opinion, people like that are going to fall on their face because our Western liberal democracy is not built like that. We're not built on shutting down debate. We're built on communicating with each other to find better solutions to problems. You know, you start... You start trying to say, I call you a racist, you shut down. Now we're starting to sink into these ideological differences. And and trust me, I don't know if everyone's noticed, but ideology is killing the world. Our obsession with our ideologies in the face of critical thought is part of this big issue. And on top of that, if you really, like, this is something I always say to people. Like, we need to have these conversations because guess what? And I get shut down as a racist all the time when I say this. But it's true. The demographics in Canada, if every single person who could vote voted, I think it's between 60 and 70%. So a super majority of Canadians are of European descent. So for the most part, that means Caucasian. So if you want to sit here and start calling people racist and trying to shut down the conversation, well, you are reinforcing white supremacy because you are forcing people to settle into their identity groups and then they're going to vote as identity blocks. And that is exactly what ideological political parties want. They want us to settle into our identity groups and vote in identity blocks so that they can put the numbers together to maintain power. So they can say, okay, the white Canadians or the white Albertans or the, the Scottish German Albertans in this category will always vote this way because they share this ideology. So that's a tick on our number. And they're just looking for a majority, not even a majority, a plurality of votes. So they don't care about the majority. They care about a plurality. And if they can break down 60% of the population into identity groups that are guaranteed to vote on ideological premises, well, they, they don't, they're going to pander their policies to those groups. So when these racialized Canadians that are speaking out about injustices start trying to shut down conversations with white people and allow these minority, literal minority groups in our democratic system...
to try and dictate how people should talk to each other. That's where I have an issue. Now, I, I do settle on the left with a lot of things. But there are things I don't. And when it comes to shutting down debate or having conversations or at least not... because And here's the thing. I could have made a super racist statement. But if you don't let me ask you how you define racism, how you think about it, if you don't let me have that conversation, how am I supposed to improve when I don't believe what you're saying as being racist? When I can't see what you're saying, the racism in what I said. Or if I don't think you get to be an authority on it, because I don't get to be an authority on all things, say, economic or political or this and that, as a white person, where you would say, okay, you built this system. Or you, I say you, but I mean, I mean, racialized people or this, this individual on Ryan Jespers and show, he may say, well, you are not an authority on democracy, even though white people built, you are not an authority on the charter. Even though a white person built it. You are not an authority on certain legal definitions. You are not an authority on the Royal Proclamation. Even though you're of English descent. So, if you don't know the definitions. If you don't know the history. If you don't know it. How can you be an authority on it? Now, and that's why I ask. Person, okay, you may be an authority on how you feel. Relative to racially charged statements. But that doesn't make you an authority on racism. That doesn't make you an expert. Everybody has anecdotal experiences. I can say, okay, I fixed my vehicle one time. That doesn't make me a mechanic. Because I figured out one thing that was wrong. Like, this is my point. I'm not going to just buy that I'm a racist because a racialized person says I am. And I don't think anybody should. But that doesn't mean that I'm not. That means we should have a conversation about what you are defining as racism. And because we live in a country of freedom of thought, a freedom of opinion, and a freedom of expression, I can believe what you say, I can listen, but as a critical thinker, I don't have to accept it at face value. And no one does. We all should think about this stuff for ourselves. And that's part of why we need to really, really work on our critical thinking. I mean, I watch CNN. So this is another example. I'm watching the CNN protests, right? And CNN is presenting... And this is an argument. This is a political thing that they said. And there might be truth to it. There might not. But CNN is supposed to be a news outlet. And what the headline read was something... And again, paraphrasing. But it was something along the lines of... Trump tear gases protesters for photo op. Now, half of that is true. Or no, they didn't say Trump. They said police tear gas protesters for a Trump photo op. It was something along those lines. Now, half of that is fact. Half of that is editorial presented as fact. Police tear gas protesters. That was fact. For Trump photo op, that's editorial, that they present as fact. Yes, there was a photo op involved, and it could be true, but this is part of why you have to think critically about the, 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 what you're told as being true, because a lot of people took that as fact and didn't think about 
how CNN was framing it. Because, of course, the opposite side is going to be like, Trump goes to show his solidarity with the church or whatever. Like, there's always an alternative framing. And the media, what they're getting wrong is that they are, are unequivocally editorializing the news and presenting it as fact. Now, this is something I saw, like, with the CBC, which I loved. I was actually so pumped. Because I'm watching this same, I don't remember what day it was, but CNN's reporter bails out of Washington. It was that night. He bails. It was the night they burned the church down. And CNN, Chris Como was like, oh no, you got to get out of there, blah, 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 like freaking out. And CNN wouldn't go back to the protest. So I switched over to CBC and the reporter was in there. CBC didn't edit away. He was being pushed back by the cops, but he hung in there. Because he was reporting. Because he wanted to make sure that these cops weren't crossing their boundaries. Whereas CNN was quick to go somewhere else when that same situation was happening. When they were reporting on the same thing at the same time. I question, why did CNN bail? And CBC stayed. CBC showed that the cops weren't using... um, You know, what's the word? They weren't using excessive force. They were clearing out. They were upholding a curfew they weren't going crazy they weren't firing people and i believe and this is my editorial is that cnn's narrative of the cops beating everybody up and and cops tear gas trump photo op that narrative was not being proven by what the cops are doing at that time so cnn went to another city to try and find the narrative they're looking for which is you know martial law blah 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 cops they showed some of the rioting but their focus was more on when the cops were reacting whereas Fox is the opposite where Fox News is like we're going to show all the rioting and we're going to show let's focus on the excessive force that's why I love CBC because CBC tries to find the sweet spot in both they try to find the truth and a lot of people argue they're just a wing of the liberal party I don't agree with that I, I know politics And I know how they present their facts. And I know how they have their panels. Their panels are so balanced. And they give... Sometimes, you know, guys like Stockwell Day make stupid statements all the time on there. But they give them a voice. They give a prominent conservative a voice. On their panels all the time. So when conservatives like the rebel media talk their shit about CBC, they're wrong. But I'm going to go to the protest today. You know, I got my mask. I got my stuff. I'm ready to go. And I'm going to see what the Calgary one was like. You know, I'm sorry I went on such a tangent. But I mean, the Lethbridge one, I really loved. Because there was a very strong indigenous presence. You know, and and sometimes I get taken aback. Like, I, I really don't... I don't always necessarily agree when indigenous leaders are like, We will get our land back. We will get kick these colonial, you know these colonial thieves off our land and honestly like i'm just like oh please don't talk like that you know you do you deserve your rights as indigenous people you do but to say that you're going to get your land back after 160 plus years you know you're 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 trying to live you're trying to go backwards you 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 know these people and this is kind of it's kind of ironic and it just dawned on me 
the people, the indigenous leaders that are saying that we are going to turn back the clock to before Canada became a country are more conservative because a big thing about conservatives is they don't want progress. They want to go backwards. They want to keep things the same. They, they want to maintain the status quo. So I would argue those indigenous leaders are almost more conservative than conservatives in that sense, in the sense of wanting to turn back the clock, which it, it, it's not going to happen. Too much development has happened. So I don't agree when they're shouting that and, and they make it seem like, like they want a riot and they want a revolution because, again, if you look at the demographics of the country, Indigenous people are not going to win that fight. But, but this is the, the beauty of our democracy and the beauty of how we can communicate is we can discuss better courses of action. We can discuss a more just society for racialized groups in Canada. And we should, because there are problems. I've heard stories from police officers. I've, you know, <laughs> there is a racism problem in Canada. I'm not sure all these people have the solutions that they claim they do. I think it's way more complicated. Do I, do I, think, do I think they should defund some of the police? Oh yeah, I definitely do. I believe in the, you know, if you want, if you want to produce change in a capitalist society, well, what do you got to do? You got to use capitalism against these, these forces that are using it against you. And so one of the ways to do that, you defund some of the police, you know, apparatus. You defund it because then there'll be two options. Either the cops change because they want the funding, which is using capitalism against itself, or they don't. And we find a new solution. I really like people that talk about maybe we need a total restructuring of our police force in this entire country. And if we do that comprehensively and we do that in the right way, I agree. You know, I like, I like the idea that we need to stop having such a nanny state. You know, when people, when cops are, are being, you know, are told to give people tickets for having open liquor at a park, like to me, that's just so nanny state. Like, leave us alone. Unless we are literally doing something that is, you know, hurting someone else or hurting ourselves or hurting society in a very measurable way, there, there shouldn't be a law against it. You know, yeah, there should be a law against smoking in bars. But there should be bars where you can smoke. If people want to smoke in bars, they should have the freedom to do that in places where they want. I mean, look at the Great Eagle Casino. There is a smoking section in that casino. You know, these overarching laws, these generalized laws that are so draconian and dictatorial dictatorial dictator i love when i get tongue-tied but but this is but that's my point is like we do need to restructure this stuff we do need need to take a hard look at how we're handling laws and how we're giving power to police officers and how we're accepting excessive force and how you know here's one thing that i said and i know this is this could be a false equivalency but i mean think about it Look at how fast the police found the bodies of those two murder kid, whatever, suicide kids out in the bush in Manitoba. And they, and they had problems finding, finding anything that had to do with Tina Fontaine. 
they go to they can find a couple white kids in no time. But they can't find some of these murdered and missing indigenous women. Why? Because the resource there were resources put into those ones. And I understand that we have a finite amount of resources. Well, let's make sure we're putting them in the right places. Let's stop. You know what? You, you want to talk a big change that should happen? Traffic tickets in Calgary should not go into the coffers of the police, Calgary Police Service. Speeding tickets or tickets in general should be going straight into mental health directly. Then you'll have either two things happen. Either cops will write less BS tickets or our mental health services will be expanded. And it will be funded by our own money directly. Not funding more police. Because if you look at crime rates, I'm not necessarily convinced that a bigger police force means less crime. I mean, the, 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 the logical conclusion is a bigger police force means more crime. And that's why statistics are a mess. But we talked about that in my last one. But anyways... That's 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 kind of my little rant on the Black Lives Matter thing. I'm going to go to the protest today. I'm I'm going to stand in solidarity. I won't chant. That's not that's not my thing. But I will go there and I will be there. And that's part of the thing. And and I heard another little comment that I actually do really a friend of mine was like, "You know what? I'm just going to live my own life and do right by the people in my life and that's that." And I said, uh, "That's perfect." That's all you need to do. Don't perpetuate racism to your kids. Don't teach people like racist ideals. Don't teach people bigotry. You know, practice what you preach. If you don't want people to be anti-white, don't be anti-black. Don't be anti-indigenous. If you don't want to have bigoted ideals tossed to you, don't toss them elsewhere. The kids are the answer, man. It's teaching these kids not to have those ideals. It's simple to me. And then we can start moving forward. We can start coming up with better policies. We can drift away from ideology and start looking at each other as individuals. You know, it's having compassion for each other. You know, it's looking at, you look at the cops, right? And, I, and I've been saying this, like what's going on in the States, you have a small, and, and there is an institutionalized problem, right? But you've got to think in some of these police departments, they have like tens of thousands of cops in them, like the NYPD, stuff like that. Tens of thousands, okay? You have four bad apples in 10,000, and there's a big problem. Because you can see, okay, now, I understand institutionalized stuff happens, and, and if you look at what happened in Minneapolis, and how the, the chief medical or autopsy, I can't remember what it's called, how they said the cause of death may not be asphyxiation, and then an independent autopsy professional, whatever, said that it was, you know, you can see that there might be some truly systemic problems happening when people of the same caliber of expertise are disagreeing, and one that's government funded is going a, a way that 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 prevents the system that protects the cops that did this, and the other one says that they did do it. Like that, those competing 
that that's where you run into problems but you can see that there could there may be some systemic stuff that is not strictly limited to four or ten or forty or a thousand cops in a ten thousand dollar ten thousand person police force right you can kind of see that but again it's the same with the protests on the other side i mean you could have a protest of, of a thousand people if you have 20 bad actors who are smashing windows, yes, the rest of the protesters will hopefully stop them, but if they don't, out of fear for whatever reason, you have 20 rioters make a thousand peaceful protesters look bad. And we have to start having compassion and start looking at these things from the perspective like, it's probably not everyone, but it is enough to need some addressing on a very real level so that was my rant for the day it's a little longer than usual but i think it's this is really important and i wanted i would have talked about this sooner but again it was because i wanted to discuss it after i'd been to a protest and seen with my own two eyes uh what it looked like uh, i'll probably we'll see if i come back next week we'll see what happens um but anyways have a great day uh stay safe and you know what black lives do matter and all lives matter and indigenous lives matter, and white lives matter. But you know what? That doesn't mean that we don't need to address the systemic problems that are going on in society right now, especially as it relates to black lives. And I think that's why you can see the whole world coming behind it in protests all over. But I will discuss my my perception on these protests and COVID next time. So talk to you later.